Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Joe Francis Penn. And in today's show, I'm talking to Tiffany Francis Baker about exploring darkness and accepting our animal selves. We discuss why going out and appreciating the dark of night can help us connect with nature and with senses other than sight, which we rely on so much, and how perhaps we need to tap into that animal side more often in order to respect the cycle of the seasons, renew our energy and our mental health, and help wildlife that need the darkness. We also talk about the attraction of pagan fire festivals and the northern lights, the power of light in the darkness, and how that connects to something primal deep within. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Tiffany. Tiffany Frances Baker is a nature writer and illustrator. Her latest book is Dark Skies, A Journey into the Wild Night. So welcome, Tiffany. Hello, hello. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, no, I'm excited to talk about it's such an interesting topic. And I, I've got to start with the most obvious thing, which are which is humans are naturally afraid of the dark. So why are you so drawn to it? Yes. So obviously we are diurnal creatures which is um, the opposite of nocturnal so generally speaking yeah we tend to do all of our kind of important stuff in the daytime and then night times for sleeping usually and obviously in the modern world that is the way we need to stick to things or we'll all be a little bit sleep deprived and nothing will get done but uh, I do find just now and then trying to spend some time out in, in the night is I find it very cathartic. I feel like the modern world can be very chaotic and very stressful sometimes. Um, And I feel like when you go out at night, you can escape everything. You can escape other people. You can escape the busyness of the world. You can escape your kind of day-to-day chores and life and just have a few moments of, of peace and calm and just experience nature and the landscape from a different perspective as well, which I think is really important. We have listeners from all over the world and you talk there about going out in England. So what might people find if they go out to explore here in particular? What are the, you know, you have birds in the book, you have a lot of nature and nature is obviously different wherever you are. So what might people hear or smell or even see, I guess? So this is the thing, it's, it's, you you can see things, but it's much more exciting. All the other things you can kind of tune your senses into. So owls, owls are an amazing thing. You, You don't necessarily always see them but I have from my house heard tawny owls and barn owls so owls are a really fun thing to kind of especially in autumn and winter you can hear them quite well when they're calling and then you've got mammals like foxes and badgers and and that sort of thing lots of small mammals out at night as well and then you've also got some kind of more interesting rare kind of birds and animals like in the summer if you go out on a heathland in the nighttime, you might hear a nightjar which is an amazing ground nesting bird that 
only kind of nests on heathlands and it makes this amazing mechanical churring noise at dusk and that's a really fantastic experience if you can hear one of those that's one of my favorite things about the night and there's loads of things and actually in autumn as well one of my favorite things to look out for in the autumn we have birds called red wings uh they're one of one of a few thrushes that migrate down here from colder countries like scandinavian countries and russia and that sort of thing and they migrate at night because it means that they're slightly to be um, predated by birds of prey and other things like that so if you go out on a, a nice clear quiet autumn night you can hear them flying over because they make this little seep 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 noise as they go over so that's a really really lovely thing to listen out for in autumn night as well so yeah we've got loads of lovely wildlife out and about at night Mm, I feel like when people don't walk at night very often, I'm certainly, I don't go out much at night. And I feel like the the rustling that you might hear at night, we might feel afraid of that rustling or a noise because we think it's something coming to hurt us and that that is a very primal fear. But as you just said, that rustling might be a fox or something that isn't coming for us. It's just something that's part of nature do you think we've lost that sense of being part of nature that we do feel we're quite separate yeah absolutely I mean even I I'm a I I love night walking but even I get spooked you know it's very difficult to ignore your primal instincts you say we are still animals and we are designed to be going to fight or flight mode sometimes and when I've been out on a walk and seen a interestingly shaped shrub or something I'm con- I can convince myself it's someone waiting to attack me or something all sorts of stuff goes through your head and I think with that sort of thing it's actually when we fear things like that it's more the fear of the unknown it's what the darkness is concealing rather than the darkness itself so yeah when we do hear those rustles and we see shapes that aren't quite clear what they are it, it we basically imagine the absolute worst rather than being rational and thinking oh it's probably just a fox having a good time <laughs> but i do think yeah i definitely think we have we we have lost that connection with nature a lot we we do forget that we are just animals um you know evolved animals and we've obviously done certain things that most other animals haven't done but when we think about our our core day-to-day lifestyles and our behaviors and our our mental health and everything i find that the more aligned we can be with with the natural world the more kind of happy and and well we are as people so i think personally my my little passion is the more we can align ourselves with nature and the the seasons and the cycles of day and night and all that kind of thing the happier we will be which I do find I, I am a lot calmer and happier when I can get out at night now and then Mm, for sure. But you talked about being spooked there and, and there are aspects of the book where you go into some places that are even more spooky. So you write about Dartmoor, where I've also walked. So if people don't know Dartmoor or the moors in general, what's special about the moors and why do they evoke such fear and legend? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's one of these places, if you haven't been to Dartmoor, you can't quite understand what a, what an amazing place it is. It's I would I would definitely call it beautiful, but it's also very bleak. It's this kind of weird uh, juxtaposition there of it, it is creepy, but it's also very beautiful. I think maybe it is just the shape of the landscape, those kind of rolling tours. A lot of the a lot of the kind of moorland is very like rugged and rocky, and and of course it's got associations like Dartmoor Prison and things. So you can very easily imagine a prisoner on the loose, or it's also got associations with smugglers back in the day. So you can kind of imagine all sorts of dastardly deeds and crimes and, and all sorts going on. And I think at night, if you 
you've been to Dartmoor at night and especially like a foggy night or lots of moonlight it's just one of these amazing places that I don't know I don't know why it is it just really captures this kind of ghostly spooky ambiance and I absolutely love it as a I'm sure you do as well. It's one of these places, once you go, you can't wait to go back again. But yeah, I definitely, it's, it's a really good place to go night walking and just e- evening walking. <laughs> and I wonder if it's partly to do with this sort of, as you said, it beautiful, I, I would say more stark. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a stark beauty. But I wonder how it helps us almost to almost have a spiritual aspect of nature when it's not so Instagrammy beautiful. I mean, there's places really on Dartmoor, you wouldn't be taking pictures because it, it it's not what you would normally call beautiful, but you feel like your place in this, in the wild space is almost more basic when it's not so Instagrammable. You know what I mean? Absolutely, I do actually. And I think that's another really interesting point that nature isn't always Instagrammable. It's not always quotation beautiful because actually nature is this amazing, complete wheel of life that is sometimes a beautiful wildflower and sometimes it's like a dead animal on the floor. There's all sorts of aspects of nature and we need to love and respect and connect with every aspect of it and so yeah maybe that is why Dartmoor is so alluring because it does draw us in from our kind of wilder selves to every aspect of that and yes some parts of it are stunning and there's these very pretty aspects of it but actually a lot of it makes us look into ourselves a bit more and and think about things that aren't quite so instagrammable is the best word I think (laughs) such a good (laughs) word to capture kind of vibe of oh this will look nice on my grid (laughs) yeah and I wonder also about being alone in a place like that and maybe facing up to those fears I remember mist like a lot of mist and feeling (laughs) you know not in a religious sense but almost are there spirits in the mist that slightly supernatural aspect of almost not knowing where you are I guess it's almost like a sea fog where you can feel very lost and yet you're still standing on on the land yeah absolutely I think that's the supernatural element especially I'm one of these people where I I, I'm not a particularly religious person I, I don't particularly strongly believe in ghosts or anything like that but but I I kind of I wouldn't trust anyone who didn't go walking somewhere like Dartmoor at night and like you say be surrounded by that fog and mist and know about the historical context of the place and not be spooked I can't possibly imagine how you could go walking there and not find yourself a bit shivery and a bit twitchy now and then I think that's great I think one of the things I like about night walking and getting a bit spooked um, is I think humans, we, we tend to be a little bit arrogant and we, we've kind of gotten used to the world revolving around us a bit. You know, we're kind of in charge of everything. And actually, one of the nice things about going out at night is it feels like you're on someone else's territory because we are, our, you know, our best sight is our vision. So we're already stripped of that. We are very much kind of the lesser animal when we're out at night because we are not as well adapted to it. We do find ourselves a bit spooked and freaked out. And it helps you put put yourself in the mind of other animals and other species that maybe we just take for granted that they're there. We kind of take for granted that we're top of the food chain, but actually going out and being a little bit more vulnerable like that is a very healthy thing to do, I think, and definitely helps me connect with the kind of ecosystem I'm a part of. 
And then, of course, one of the things we do as humans is we build fires because they help us feel safer. We have the light, we have the warmth. And you have a, a great chapter on the Wicker Man uh, that some people might have the horror movie in their in their brain. But but tell us about that folklore and why pagan fire festivals are so powerful. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because the Wicker Man Festival, Beltane, it's, I did some historical research on it and and there's actually very little evidence. We kind of associate it with people putting human sacrifices in and that sort of thing. There's actually very, very little evidence for that. And actually, they think that a Roman authority wrote it down, but it was a bit biased because he wanted to make the Celts look like absolute savages. So it's very, it's all a bit biased and a bit um, inaccurate. But the Wicker Man, the kind of basis of that is the Celtic Wheel of the Year is divided into four. And every season they have a, a different fire festival. Um, and Beltane is the one, it's in May, and it welcomes in the summer months. So it's, just, it's a very positive thing. It's not really to do with burning people alive or anything like that. Um, it's actually all about celebrating fertility and life and warmth and, and the beautiful days ahead. So they built a big Wicker Man um, again apparently because there's actually very little evidence for anything to do with this but the kind of idea behind it is they built this big wicker man and they burnt it down at dusk and they also did a few other fire rituals so they would walk their cattle between two other bonfires to cleanse them of things and again just encourage this happy fertile period ahead and please the ancient gods so it's just this really wonderful, it's actually a really wonderful, positive experience. And if anyone ever goes to a, a Beltane Festival, a Wickerman Festival, you'll know it's it's a really wonderful thing. Lots of cider and dancing and music and all that sort of thing. It's the highlight of my year. In fact, I'm really sad it's not on this year. and Well, not on in pro- properly this year, and it wasn't on last year. And I really missed it because of obviously COVID. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, hopefully that will come back. It feels almost like in England is is a secular place. United Kingdom is pretty secular in general. And it feels like there's almost been embracing of these, in quotation marks, pagan <laughs> festivals, but, you know, almost reclaiming some of the emotional aspects of the changing of the seasons, for example, and just feeling like they're more special, perhaps because they're not necessarily associated with, with religion. Do you think so yeah absolutely I really do think I mean maybe it's just me being optimistic but I really do think we're having this resurgence in people just again reconnecting with our kind of wilder more nature influenced selves and I think pagan festivals like that are just a really great gateway into that because it's this perfect hybrid of humans and nature where we you know you collaborate into these amazing festivals where you're celebrating the seasons and celebrating life and I definitely think these these revivals in this kind of thing are part of a wider resurgence in people are we've stepped so far away from nature now that I think personally having looked at research and that sort of thing we are suffering from that now. So we've got huge mental health problems, all kind of other well-being problems. We've got obviously the environmental destruction that's going on. And it all comes from this separation from nature. And I hate even saying that because we're not separate from nature. We're part of nature, but this kind of mental separation from nature that, that we can't do because no one will survive if we do that. So I feel like everything that's happening at the moment is this very beautiful and slow movement back to a closer relationship with nature and nurturing that primitive side of us and nurturing how we should be living in tune with the seasons. We're one of, it's so strange when you think about it, we're one of the only animals in the world that 
that treats every month of the year exactly the same. So we'll work just as hard in, say, February as we do in August. And it doesn't make any sense because every other animal in, in the animal kingdom uses the, the rhythm of the year to do different things. And we do this crazy power through the year if it's all the same. And then we wonder why we're so stressed out and tired and everything. So, yeah, I feel very optimistic that we are slowly recognising now what we've done and we're going back to it where we can. And I know for in my experience, being closer with nature is has massively helped my well-being. Mm. Do you think that the pandemic, obviously there's a lot of terrible things about the pandemic, but one of the maybe silver linings is that people have had to spend more time in nature like a lot of people are walking more seeing their local area my husband and I have walked we live near the Kennet and Avon canal so we walk along the canal almost every day Uh, we live in Bath so we we walk around here and, and walk up the hills and just this getting to know the places where you are because we haven't been able to travel further so do you think that has accelerated in the pandemic? Yeah, definitely. I have two dogs. And so I go out walking every day. And I have, I've noticed a real increase in the number of people who are walking on my kind of regular um, dog walk, which I'm absolutely fine with. I love the fact that more people are outdoors. I don't mind sharing. But I've definitely noticed a big increase still. I mean, it kind of has fluctuated throughout the pandemic but I definitely have seen more people just out and about in our local area you're right because we can't get to other places We're, we are exploring where we live and for example just this week I go to for the same walk I mean our car's broken at the moment so I can't even drive across town to another place so I'm literally doing the same route at the moment every day and yesterday I decided to just go down this little track that I'd seen that I'd never been down before. And I found a completely new loop of um, the walk I usually do. And it was great. I was like, oh, this is brilliant. I found a whole new, a new little bit. And I was looking around at what there was and what trees were growing and the blackthorn blossom was coming out. And it was amazing, actually. And I think generally the pandemic, you're right, it's obviously been an awful thing, but there have been some silver linings. And I think it is very much about appreciating what we have on our doorstep, appreciating how much nature makes us feel better when we need it. And just appreciating small things, little mindful moments where you can just notice the season change. When I saw the blackthorn blossom yesterday, I was like, oh, great. Another little sign of spring. We're slowly getting there. You know, we've had a bit of sun recently and and I, I just thought, oh, that is, who knows if I would have noticed that if I was in the middle of a, doing a job or visiting other places or normal life was going on. But going for a walk every day, I think has been a bit of a highlight for a lot of people through the pandemic. So you, you do just tend to take more notice of what's going on around you, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because I I lived in New Zealand for seven years and then Brisbane, Australia for five years. And we moved back from Brisbane back to the UK. A lot of people think you move to Australia and that's it forever. But we one of the things we missed the most was the seasons because Brisbane and, you know, in Queensland, it's basically either hot and wet or hot and dry and (laughs) with flooding and fires. And and I was like, you know, I really miss the seasons being British. I feel like as soon as the sun comes, comes out I should be outside which in Australia will kill you so (laughs) (laughs) I really it's so interesting how the seasons make a difference and I also feel like I've never spent a whole year essentially taking pictures of the same area across all the seasons yeah 
no, that's been a big thing. I know exactly what you mean. I've heard uh, other people say that actually they kind of miss. We we often complain about the British weather and the rain and everything, but it, it is the rain and the cold is part of the whole beautiful cycle and. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think I do get to the end of February and I'm a little bit done with winter. <laughs> For sure. But most of it, and this, is, and this is where seasonal living comes in, because rather than you get to the colder months, so you get to November and it gets a little bit cold and a little bit rainy. And I found myself rather than being like, oh, great, you know, can't sit in the pub garden anymore, can't do this. Now I'm just trying to think like, right, well, what is this telling me about what I should be doing? What are other animals doing? They're kind of preparing for hibernation. So do you know what? I'm going to embrace that. I'm still going to get my fresh air every day, but I'm going to cozy up the house and I'm going to focus on tarting up this little bit of the house that I've been meaning to do for ages. And you can change it in your mind so that you kind of connect more with what what your your body's telling you to rest and and reflect on things and that's what I'm trying to do more now and and I know other people doing that too and I think it it does help rather like I said rather than just smashing through the years if it's all the same so I can totally totally know what you mean about about enjoying watching the changing seasons because they really do transform a space you look at one one place in Britain over the four seasons and it, it looks just completely different from one month to the next so that is one of the really lovely things about living in a very rainy country <laughs> yeah and you as you were talking that reminded me of the lovely Mary Oliver poem wild geese let the soft animal of your body love what it loves mm. and it, it feels like we as you say get out of touch of that and we have to just respect that more and understand that we are animals and yeah, hibernate when we need to. And so I really appreciate that because I feel like this year we have got much more into cycles. And as a as a writer, we've had cycles of just not being able to write because of various <laughs> mental health issues generally. Yeah. But then then the energy to write again. And obviously you've been you've been through that too, these periods where you can have great creative energy and then periods where you, you need to be fallow almost. Mm, absolutely. Oh God, it's it's amazing actually. I, I try and look at it every year. I, I tend I generally tend to find that weirdly you'd think summertime I'd be like, great, loads of energy, loads of motivation. But I, I actually dry up creatively in the summer and it's only the autumn that I really start I, every year without fail. Autumn time I get like a real wave of inspiration and motivation and I can find I can write again. So yeah, I definitely find that. And and I've had a weird year anyway, because I had a baby. <laughs> so <laughs> You know, talk about crazy cycles and rhythms and all that sort of thing. But in a lot of ways, like you say, relating to your animal self, that nothing's made me do that more than having a baby. And I've never felt more mammal than I have in the last year. Um, and again, it's really nice because I've just trying to be giving into it. And another silver lining of the pandemic is I've been able to just focus on just becoming a mother and resting and not having to rush around doing stuff. So that has actually been a nice thing. But it is amazing this year. I've really, really recognised how animal we are. And it's a good thing not to resist that and just to embrace it. Mm. And then I wanted to ask you, because obviously you're a writer, but you're also an illustrator and the book contains your gorgeous illustrations and, and you do things for other people as well. And I wondered, does your visual art in that way help you see in a different way and express yourself in a different way than writing words? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. They're definitely very intertwined, my writing, my illustration. And I do I, I do love it if I can do a piece of work that incorporates both. That, that really satisfies me a lot. Yeah, I think I, I am quite a visual writer. I do. I, I tend to work. I have a 
especially as I write about nature, I, I tend to just have this kind of like visual idea in my head. And then I, it's almost like I have to write out the idea to fill it up. And I think I do find that, yeah, doing illustrations alongside or afterwards or whatever, it, it does all help it solidify in my head until I'm, when it's finished, I'm like, oh yeah, that's literally my thought. And it, it's, it's it's become made into something I can see now, which is good. It's really interesting, the relationship I have between writing and illustration, because I think for a long time, I don't, I know a lot of people have felt this as well. We kind of still a little bit of a hangover from maybe the past when you kind of did one job you you were either a writer or an illustrator and and for a while I struggled with the idea of like being both I thought no I need to commit to one or the other I need to be a writer or an illustrator and for ages I I it was really weird I don't know why I just built this kind of obstacle in my head where I couldn't be both and it's taken a few years to relax that obstacle but I and I do now accept very happily that I am both and actually yeah writing really helps my artwork and vice versa so I'm really lucky that I could do both especially as I <laughs> I get quite distracted and bored quite easily so it's really nice if I get a bit fed up with writing I just draw something and then I can switch back again <laughs> Oh, no, I think that's great. And I'm also a multi-passionate creator and spent a lot, way too long also, like you, thinking, oh, I must be one or the other. I write with several different names and have different brands and write in loads of genres. And it's like, okay, seriously. <laughs> but now I, I accept it. And part of this, perhaps this getting more in touch with our animal selves is just the acceptance of who we are without trying to fit into someone else's view of who we should be. Yeah, absolutely. And all these labels, I think we tend to give each other. And that's a bit of a societal thing. I think we, you know, you are this and we are, I am that. And so, sometimes I feel like it's almost down to like social media, having to fill in like your Twitter bio. <laughs> your bio. You know? Like, what do I put? I'm too, I'm, I don't know what to put. It's so silly, isn't it? And if you could just let go of that, you're a lot better off. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Now, I did also want to ask you, because I feel like one of the iconic trips that a lot of us have, I certainly have I haven't seen them yet but the northern lights have this mythology about them and you do have uh, in the book you've explored the night in different countries and you do talk us talk through the northern lights so why do you think they are such a thing like why do people long to see them and when you did go what did you think yeah it's really interesting isn't it I mean I I'm sure there is more to it than they're just beautiful because they are they are just this most you know there's nothing really quite like it anywhere else on earth this this amazing display of kind of electromagnetic curtains of color it's just absolutely yeah unique i actually I had never heard of them before I read His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman. And I remember being like, what are these Northern Lights? He keeps, you know, what is this? And I remember finding out and being like, wow, what? Uh, How have I not known about this before, you know? And I think when I went there, um, I was so lucky because, you know, plenty of people book a trip to see the Northern Lights and they don't get to see them. And I had this little app on my phone that told me electromagnetic activity nearby. So I was like tracking it obsessively, like, oh, am I going to get, you know, a good one? And I was so lucky because I had an absolutely amazing display uh, a couple of times, actually. But yeah, it was, oh, it was just, I mean, talk about cliche, but it was, it was amazing. I, I'm so happy I've seen them. And I, I, beg anybody to go and see them in their lifetime because they they are just there is just nothing like it and I remember we we I was on this aurora hunting minibus <laughs> we got <laughs> we were squidged into this minibus and we were chatting and not really looking where we were going because it was dark 
And then we all tumbled out of this minibus after this guy pulled over and we hadn't even noticed. We looked up and there were these just, ah, oh, just the whole sky was just covered in these northern lights. And we all just stood there in absolute silence. Like, how have we only just spotted this and didn't see out the window when we were driving? But it was just, yeah, an absolutely magical experience. And and it did, it was really good, you know, researching about the night. And I was really interested in how these Arctic countries live in darkness for three months of the year. That's really why I went. It was more to see the polar night. But I that, that actually answered the question for me a bit because I thought, well... If, if you're used to living in darkness of three months of the year you get used to it but actually maybe it is this this these amazing lights that that you get as part of that maybe makes up for it and gives you a little bit of light in the darkness that's my conclusion I came to because I think I could probably live in three months of darkness if I got to see the northern lights now and then <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if it's a similar feeling to having that the fire and the flame. It's this, as you say, the light in the darkness, the the hope, the the flicker, and maybe a spiritual aspect. I, I think there are myths of the spirits or the ancestors being mm-hmm. up there in in the lights, and there's a lot of meaning that we ascribe to something as reductive as electromagnetic forces or whatever but that it's far more than that yeah absolutely I think there's some really amazing folklore behind the northern lights and you can see how they became a very important part of the cultures of these countries and and yeah it does it definitely does make up for the for the endless darkness although I have to say I loved visiting it was in Tromsø in Norway I went but I was very happy there but I when I got back, I was very happy to see the sun. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's December. I've never been so happy to be in in winter in the UK. <laughs> yeah, that, that is interesting. And I did. I wanted to ask you about the International Dark Sky Association, which I had never heard of before. And essentially, we think that, so I, as I said, I live in Bath in the UK. If I go outside at night, I'm not really in darkness I, ha- I would have to get quite a way away. And I so tell us a bit more about this International Dark Sky Association. And, and if we want to go exploring at night, do we take a torch or does that miss the point? <laughs> <laughs> so the International Dark Sky Association is the kind of governing body that designates dark sky areas around the world. So it's, it's as it says, international. So it's all over the world. We are so lucky in the UK. We have we have 16 certified sites. So I actually live in one. I live in the South Downs National Park. And, and it, a few years ago, it was designated an international dark sky reserve. So it's basically all to do with light pollution. So they do loads of amazing work and they try and reduce the amount of light pollution going into the sky so that it means that you can better see the stars. But obviously, indirectly, what that means is that we have better levels of darkness, which is really good for wildlife because they can carry out their natural behaviours without being bothered by artificial lighting. So it's really, really important. And it's also just culturally important. You know, the, the, the privilege of being able to see the stars is something that we should never take for granted because it gives us so much perspective on our place in the universe and our place in the world and, and that sort of thing. And I would say, yeah, I would say that going out at night, you can take a torch. And I would I would recommend having a torch in your bag. But obviously, it does miss the point because for one thing, you can't really appreciate the beautiful kind of velvet night and, and night light, night darkness uh, if you've got a torch shining around. It's good to have one just for safety. But I would try 
if, if I were you and, and wanted to go for a night walk, I would take your torch with you, find a good spot, then put the torch away and just sit and let your eyes just and really tune into all your other senses while you're out there. And the thing I always say is if people are a little bit frightened, just go with a friend. <laughs> That's the best thing to do. You don't have to go off on these intrepid solo adventures into the darkness. Just go with a friend, take your dog and make a really fun trip of it. Mm, I love that. So this is the Books and Travel podcast. So apart from your own books, can you recommend a few about travel or nature that you love and recommend? Yes, I've got three to recommend today. So you said I could do it. You said fiction or nonfiction, which mm-hmm. made me think. And actually, the first one I picked is a fiction one. And it's one of my favourite books ever, because it's one of these books that really makes me want to go on an adventure. And it's actually Journey to the Centre of the Earth by Jules Verne. Yeah, good one. <laughs> um, which I absolutely love. You know, he goes to, I think it's Iceland and goes underground and there's all sorts of bizarre creatures and everything in it. But I just, I love the, I mean, you know, it's a bit of an older book now, but I I just, every time I read it, I just, I'm a, I'm a kid again. And also it just makes me, I mean, especially right now, it's a very frustrating book to read because you can't go anywhere, but it just makes me desperately want to go to Europe or go climbing a mountain somewhere or just go and go and see the world and, maybe look at some rocks or something. But yeah, I also (laughs) love that book. And that was my first little pick for you. (laughs) And then the next one I've got, um, a very, quite different, but a really amazing book that I read recently. Now I'm going to probably butcher his name because he's French, but it's, I'm going to say it in a very awful English way, Sylvain Tesson. (laughs) And it's called Constellations of the Forest, Alone in a Cabin in the Middle Tiger. And if you have heard of it, it's basically this writer does something I couldn't do. And he goes off to, I think it's Russia. Yeah, it's in Russia. He goes and locks himself in a cabin in Russia for six months all by himself. He occasionally sees someone else, but he he very much wants to just be alone for six months. And it's quite difficult reading parts and it's very much a kind of exploration of the human mind. But his writing of the landscape in Russia and this kind of very solitary existence, I found very captivating. And it was a really, really, really interesting book. But Mm. like I said, I couldn't do what he did because... (laughs) Nor me. I need people around me sometimes. (laughs) Um, And then the last book I wanted to share is a really new one. It only came out in February. um, And I was very lucky I got sent a... I reviewed it for Resurgence magazine. But um, it's by Cal Flynn and it's called Islands of Abandonment, Life in a Post-Human Landscape. And this book is just fantastic. She basically goes to some of the kind of eeriest and most desolate places on earth and they're generally places that humans once inhabited but have now left either by choice or by force so you know typically Chernobyl but she goes to all kinds of really amazing fascinating places where and you think it would be a very depressing book and in parts it is because they're places that sometimes humans have just absolutely destroyed the environment so they can't live there anymore but actually it's a very it, it is an uplifting book somehow it's optimistic and how the earth repairs itself and how these places have taken on a new weird identity of their own and how things are still living and growing so yeah that was uh, such an interesting and different book and I really recommend that for people who are interested in our human human landscape relationship 
Mm, I love that. I'm going to have to get that that last one in particular because I, I, I'm a, sort of not a fan. Fan's the wrong word, but dark travel fascinates me. And yeah. like obviously Chernobyl and all the pictures I've seen, it is now run by nature. It really is overgrown and, and there are creatures there and nature comes back. And in that way, it's pretty hopeful, right? Is, yeah, is the book got that? Yeah, it, that's definitely the vibe. Like I said, there are some bleak parts, but overall I, I finished it and I I felt uplifted. I thought it was just, yeah, it, it definitely gave me hope for the future. <laughs> Great. So where can people find you and your books online? So I have a website with everything on it. So it's just www.tiffanyfrancisbaker.com. And on social media, I do have Twitter, but I hardly ever use it. So if you want some good old social media content, I'm best on Instagram, which is at tiffany.francis. And they are the two best places to find me. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Tiffany. That was great. No worries. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.